This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. Southeastern Theological Seminary understands that you have a strategic and valuable role to play in fulfilling the Great Commission. That's why they offer their Master of Divinity to provide rigorous biblical and theological training for your current and future ministries. Their Master of Divinity offers broad ministerial training while facilitating a deep engagement with the Bible, all within a community of holistic spiritual formation and discipleship. Be shaped as a Great Commission Christian and experience theological education to the fullest. Visit sebts.edu slash mdiv to learn more. Welcome to the Gospel Coalition Podcast, equipping the next generation of believers, pastors, and church leaders to shape life and ministry around the gospel. On today's episode, you'll hear a message from Corey Porter. This message was originally delivered at TGC's 2021 Women's Conference. My name is Corey Porter. Um, I've been doing campus ministry probably for like the last 13 years. I came to faith at the University of Mississippi, um, and then I became a student leader who then got fell in love with God's Word, went to seminary down at RTS in Mississippi, transferred over to Princeton Theological Seminary, done campus ministry at Michigan State on Princeton University's campus, and I'm just really thankful to be here. I said that a lot of times, but honestly, it was campus ministry that really formed me and cultivated in me a desire, earnestly a desire to seek God and to seek his holiness. And often the conversation about sin, when you get into the local church, unfortunately, sometimes it can be watered down. People have more things at stake, but when you're in college, you got nothing to lose. You just want to zealously follow God. And so I'm going to have a real conversation today with you guys. It's not going to be sugar-coated. It's going to be upfront about some of the things we struggle with in hopes not to expose you or to make you feel bad. That is not what I'm here about. But I am here for our freedom, right? Our freedom away from the sin that keeps us in bondage. So if you guys are okay with that, um, on your talk, what you noticed was back in 2019, I was asked to give this talk. And so I came up with, out of Romans 8, inspirational. It's a gospel fight, dying to sin and living for Christ. And so if you're online watching and if you're in your bulletins, you guys see that. But uh, 2020 happened. Amen. And that was an Old Testament biblical type of year. It was flood, famine, COVID-19 plague, praise God. And so because of that dynamic, I decided to go Old Testament. And so if you're a Bible lady and you know where your scriptures are, if not, if there's a little continent, uh, context uh, part at the beginning of your Bible. And so I'm going to start out of 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12 is where we'll be today. 
And as you turn there, again, we'll spend most of our time there. I do want to set the stage a little bit to say the reason why I want to slow down in this is because COVID has really stripped away the distractions. And for many of us, as distractions have been stripped away and the things that would keep us from really um, like reflecting on where we are with the Lord, now because those things are going away, we actually start to see things that we don't like about ourselves. And we have no way out of those things. We have sin patterns that we want to escape from, but we don't know how to break free. And that's a real situation. And in this uh, passage with David, you guys know the passage, which is really good. So we can get more kind of from David, the biblical character over to your life as well. In this passage, you'll see that David is a man after God's own heart, like we are women after God's own heart. But also in this, you will see a man who struggles with and commits one of the gravest sins imaginable, adultery with Bathsheba. And so, again, as we get to this passage, I want to pray for us and then we'll start. God, I thank you so much for the women in this room. I thank you so much just for each and every soul, God, from the college student to their mother, to their grandmother, Father, for people who labor on college campuses, for the people who are watching online. Father, there's a word for people in this room. That's what you told us, that your word would go out, God. It would transform. It would train your church up in righteousness. So, Father, that's what we're asking for, that as I teach through this passage, God, that you would decrease me, decrease my nerves, decrease parts of my personality that may be abrasive. But, God, increase your word. In this room, God, we ask that you increase your spirit. You increase who you are in our hearts. So, God, that we may be freed from sin. You are good, God. All of us believe it. All of us know it. That is why we are here. You are good. God, give us a new word. We love you dearly. In your son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So it's imperative, again, that I kind of give us the setup of David. Because if we start in 2 Samuel chapter 11, what you're going to end up starting with is David's sin. And no one wants to start in a narrative about their life with their sin. <laughs> right? Nobody. So what we want to do instead is start with David as who he was and how God saw him all throughout the biblical Old Testament uh, narrative. David starts as a little shepherd boy out in the field and God sends this prophet, Nathan, um, sorry, Samuel, to anoint David to be the next king. And God doesn't look on David's outward appearance. No, he looks at his heart. and He says, this will be a man who has a humble heart after me that will trust me, that will follow me. And so as a little boy, not only does he go out into the wilderness and he fights different uh, blinds, tigers and bears, and he's trained up into God and he uses his natural gifts as he builds them up. But then when the Philistines come against Israel and they say they're going to wipe out the Israel and they're going to take them out, no man would stand against Goliath. No man was selling his Philistines. But who would? It was David, the little shepherd boy, because he trusted in God. He trusted in the capabilities that God had given him. Again, moving forward, when David defeats Goliath, there was something that's kind of ratchet. Everybody know that term, ratchet? Okay, praise God. Everybody, that term ratchet, there was something kind of foul that happens. And what happens? The crowd looks at it and says, oh my gosh, Saul kills a thousand, but David kills tens of thousands. Now, if you can imagine, Saul is the reigning king. He kind of knows that David is being popular and more popular than him. So he's upset. And so it's this envy in Saul that starts to create. Now, God's spirit has already left Saul. We already know that. Saul's already on something else. He's tripping. And so Saul has so much anger and sin in his heart that he pursues David to kill him. He's going to take him out. And so what ends up happening is David flees into the wilderness. He doesn't try to fight. He doesn't try to divide the kingdom. He flees because, again, he's trusting God. Time and time again, Saul tries to kill David. But David, again, never, never um, replies with any type of animosity. David's given several occasions, multiple occasions to kill Saul, and he never does. And when we see this, not only does he not kill him, when he's in the wilderness, David's where he flees, 
poetry comes out of David Hart's to God. If you're a woman, if you're taking notes, it is Psalm 18 that David writes in the wilderness. It is Psalm 52, Psalm 53, Psalm 57. All of this flows out of David in the wilderness experience. And David in his wilderness, he doesn't like push it back or he's upset about it. No, he embraces it. He actually sees a community out there. He gets 30 mighty men to be on his side. And so David, in some ways, is flourishing, if you will, even though things are coming against him. Again, because he loves God. And so when Saul dies after a battle with the Philistines and then the tribes, because David is so popular, the tribes come to him and they say, hey, David, would you be willing to unite us? And humble and, and, and passionate King Saul, I mean, D- David, what he does is he says, yes, I will unite you. So David becomes king, the new king of Israel. And David does two important things just for biblical context. He establishes a p- political kingdom in Jerusalem and he calls it the city of Zion. Second, what David does is he seeks to build God, this beautiful altar and temple, because not only does he want Israel to have a political kingdom, but he wants to have a place where people can worship. And this is the man that we are introduced to before we even get to his sin. This is a man that from his youth, he's been raised in God, loves God. And I'm talking to college students. You understand that some of you have never knew a day where you don't know Christ. Right. But what's going to happen is as you interact with the real world in college, what what happen is people are going to come to you. Things are going to happen and you're going to start to see things come out of you that you never expected. And so in the story of David, it is beautiful to see that God is still faithful. And so we're going to transition over because, again, this is David's three dimensional. You're a three dimensional person. And my hope for you is if you get nothing else out of this story is that you start to see that there's a pattern to sin. Sin never comes out of the blue, but there's a pattern. There's an evolution that develops in our hearts that causes us to sin. And so when we see this passage, if you're if you're a note taker again, I have a new title for you. And my new title is our desire, our sin, his death. Again, it was very simple, but I like to repeat Um, our desire, our sin, his death. And I'm pulling this from a particular passage. So it is kind of important that you write that down. The passage I'm pulling from, if you guys were listening yesterday, is the same passage that Mary Wilson read. And it's out of James 1. And it's so helpful. And James 1 verses 13 to 15 here, it shows that sin doesn't just happen again. It is a process. And so 13, read with me if you're there, um, is worth, it is actually worth turning there. So if you're there, please um, read with me. Keep your hand on it. We'll trace it throughout my talk. Let no one say when she is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. That's the setup. God ain't in your sin. Amen? Amen. So, but each person is tempted, it says, when she is lured and enticed by her own desire. Verse 15, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, bring forth death. There's a process there. There's desire. And the desire has conception and it brings forth um, sin. And then sin, when it is fully grown, has a death element to it. And so we literally are going to trace in David's life that evolution area process. So point one, chapter 11, verse one through three, David is tempted by his own desire. Now, I do want to be clear about this. And it came up in the um, what sexual struggles women face. Um, Desire is not the problem. If you were to Google desire, look it up in a definitional space, you are to see urge, craving, curiosity, There's nothing wrong with having a curious nature about yourself, right? If you're a reader, you want to know what happens at the end of your book. 
That's a good, right part of you. God put desire in us. That is good, right? Even as a vegan, amen, woman, I know it's good and right that you guys eat Chick-fil-A. Like, I know that. Why? Because God has anointed that chicken to die for sacrifice for your stomach. That is a good thing, lady. So with that being said, desire is not the problem. So if desire is not the problem, then what is the problem? It's when desire is fleshly. And so again, I'm trying to walk through this. I only got about 40 minutes, 34 minutes, praise God. And I got a lot to get through. So look up Galatians 5 to understand the flesh. Moving on. So what happens is in our tempted, we're tempted by our personal desire. And I'm telling you, the devil don't come at you with her desire, her desire. He comes at you with your desire. What does your heart want? And that's how he gets you. He doesn't come at you with what your boyfriend does and stays on Fortnite for 14, 15 hours and shirks all his responsibility and doesn't study for the exam. No, he comes at you when you're a woman who wants to look a particular way. You have a certain ideal about yourself and you want to reflect that. And so what you do is you struggle with bulimia, anorexia. Because the devil has tempted you in a space of your desire. There's nothing wrong with wanting to look well. It's what we're willing to do in order to achieve our desires. And that's where the enemy gets us. Again, God is so gracious to us because he shows us that it's ordered for us to thrive, that our desires have to become Christ's desires. It has to become God's desires. Who does is the best? It's Christ. Christ himself has desires. They're, again, a God-given good thing. And when he's attempted in the wilderness, he does not sin but the devil tips him how? By his desires, right? So Christ ain't ate for 40 days and 40 nights, y'all. So what is he tempted by? Bread, amen. So again, another situation, Christ is taken up to this big mountaintop and he says, you can have anything that you want. And then what happens? He says, no, I'm gonna stay with God. But why was that even a temptation? Why was all the kingdoms of the world and his glory a temptation to Christ? Because Christ was already promised it, y'all. But Christ's desire we see in the Garden of Gethsemane was not to go to the cross. And so what the devil says is, hey, I'll give you what you can have without the cross. That was Christ's temptation, but yet he still stays with God. Desire, again, is not the problem. Christ submits his desire to God and says, let your will be done in my, my own. Very similar, again, we have to have this. So I'm going to pick up in um, verse two. We're going to scrap one for a second. Pick up in two. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. So in verse 2, what we see here is David's just living his life, y'all. David ain't doing nothing spectacular. He just got up from bed. He saw a woman. She said, he said she was beautiful. Ain't nothing wrong with that. That's a good and right desire. He actually sends somebody to inquire about who she is. Again, not the problem. But I will tell you just very quickly that sometimes our temptation comes most when we don't expect it. And so, again, it's not a problem, but the problem is we have to check our desires daily. Right. It's not a thing that we do once a year. It's not a thing we do at community group It's daily. I'm checking what am I desiring from the situation out of life and where is it leading me to? And so if I'm going to be practical very quickly, I wrote down some things. One is your accounts that you follow. Who are you desiring to look like, to be like, to image, to reflect? The pictures we post. You cannot have John 3.16 and then a bikini shot. Come on, sis, where we at? That is a disconnect, cognitive dissonance. Okay, we comments we leave on people's posts, right? Look at how you're forming your, your thoughts there. And then what do we entertain in private? Our DMs. These are important things to think through. So don't get me wrong again, social media is amazing. It connects us during COVID, but it's important to realize that we have to understand where our desires are. And so if David can walk up 
and have this incredible, crazy sin that he does just by getting out of bed and have all this suffering, your iPhone can bring suffering. Trust me, it's the mundane things of life that trap us of sin. It's not the big spectacular things. My last point on this is that sin is a choice. I mean, desire, it, desire has a choice um, to it, right? So you're not, you have the Holy Spirit in you. If I was in Romans chapter eight, would you realize that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, a man lives in your body. That means you are captive by no sin. That means you have a way to be able to overcome this. David, Old Testament, they didn't have the spirit in them, but we know that spirit was upon David in the Old Testament. And so David, too, had the ability to free himself, but yet he chose not to turn. The point to turn would have been in verse three. When he got up, he saw the woman and he naked. He probably should have turned away. Right. So but he didn't. And many of us, if we're being honest in our lives, when we start to have our desires, we, we reason. We have um, what I say, um, rationalized foolishness, if you will. We rationalize our craziness. We're like, oh, I can just do a little bit of this or a little bit of that. But that, y'all, that's going to get you nowhere but caught into sin. And so we continue with the conversation again. God will always give us a way of escape. Anytime there's a desire presented that you need to get out of that's that's first Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. And there's a lesson here. If I'm moving quickly on this and it is to if you're trying to get to the practical goals of what do I do about my desires? How do I fight my desires? I would say quick practicals. One is prayer and the word. When I have desires that I'm realizing I'm struggling with, again, those temptations, the thoughts are not bad. I go to prayer. I bring what is in darkness and what is eating at me. I bring that and I say it out loud to the Lord or I say it in prayer with him. But I am talking to it. It has no ability to have power over you when you bring it to light. It feeds in darkness. Don't allow your desires to stay in darkness. Confess that to the Lord, to your community and the word of God. I'm going to read this. It's really important. It's a word I have lived by. It is 2 Timothy 3.16. And it shows us what God's word does. It's exactly fit for this. It says all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach and what is true and what makes us realize our right and our wrongs in our lives. This is NLT. ESV, amen. It corrects when we are wrong and it teaches us to do right. That's 2 Timothy 3.16. The word of God soaked in your heart will allow you to align your desires in a way that is different from what you had before. That's how Christ was able to get out of his desires, right, that he had. He pushed back with what? The word of God. It's a sword. It fights for us. Get a plan. I said this in the sexual panel, but you need a plan. If you struggle with masturbation, pornography, why is your phone by your bed? Right? Why are we, what are we doing? Like move your phone, get a plan, move things around so that you may be free. Right. If you have a gossip problem and you talk with one of your girlfriends all the time, tell her to correct you. I know Jackie did a talk on the tongue. Um, I wish I was there for that Um, because my tongue, my God. And so I tell one of my girlfriends, when you see my tongue getting out of pocket, let me know. Why? Because I don't want to be a teacher teaching about the gospel. And my same mouth that I bless people with, I curse people with. What are we doing? We step away from that. You get a plan in your life and it gives you freedom. Moving on, community. Who has access to your life? Who can speak into your life? Are you so prideful and bold? I, I was where I couldn't allow people to speak in my life. No, no, no. I open my life. I say, hey, here's my phone if you need it. Hey, here's my accounts. I am open. There is nothing someone can, can pull up about me that I have not already shared. My mentor out of 13 years is here. For sophomore in college, I met this lady and she is, I am 32 years old and she has kept me. Right. But not just her. Don't exhaust one person. Praise God. Put a community of disciples and networks around you so that they may be free. Right. We do this together in community. Point two um, is verses 11. I mean, chapter 11, verses four through um, 25. So David's desire comes and he conceives and gives birth to sin. 
have a pastor friend of mine. His name is Lawrence Aja. And the reason why I'm mentioning him is because I don't believe in plagiarism. Um, and one thing that Lawrence told me about sin, he says, sin is like a moving train. Unless you get off, it will take you where you never expected to go. Right. So one minute, David is getting up from his bed. And then the next minute, he's getting back into his bed with sin. That's not what he expected to do. He just got out of bed, walked on the roof. Then he comes back, his man is in sin. Wow. So when I think of sin, I think of the New Jersey transit system. Amen. Okay. I, it, it's the place of all my anxiety. Like, I don't even know how I'm going to get back home to Princeton. I have no idea. So when I go to the airport, I travel places. What I end up doing is I go from, I, I come through, but there's so many different towns before you get to Princeton. And so I never know where to get off. And at some point, you're just in this hyper state and you just pass out. So I go to sleep on the train. And I woke up and I was in Trenton. That's a couple towns over, y'all. That's not the town I'm supposed to be in, right? So it took me somewhere that I'm not trying to go. And when you fall asleep in the face of sin, because it is crouching at your door and it is looking, it says sin is crouching at your door and it desires you. How about that? Not that we have desire, sin has desire and his desire is for you. And it says that not only do, are we respected, I'm sorry, so and it's, it's desires for you. And he says to, uh, uh, I'm sorry, this was Abel, um, no, Cain. He says to Cain, he says, and you must master it. This was before he even killed his brother. Right. There's ways to look at our desire and to get off of it. Um, and moving forward, when I'm looking at these verses, I'm seeing this overview happen. And I'm, I'm about to transition and read out four through 13. So bear with me again, looking in your scriptures. But here, what you'll see is David goes farther than he ever planned. He has lust that goes to adultery, that goes to deceit, that goes to dishonor, that goes all the way to, to murder. So let that trace out with you. Lust, adultery, deceit, dishonor, all is going to be found in verses 4 through 13. Then David sent messengers to get Bathsheba. And she came to him and slept, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly of cleanliness. And then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David, he sent word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab said to David, when you I'm sorry, and then Joab sent him to David. Now, when Uriah came to him, David asked, how's Joab? How Joab was and how the soldiers were and what were they doing out in the war? David's really chill for somebody who just slept with his wife. Then David says to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Just hang out, guy. So, so Uriah left the palace and then David lays it on thick here. It says a gift from the king was sent after him. So David even gives him a gift, y'all. That's how guilty David feels. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace and all of the master's servants and did not go to his house. So David was told that Uriah didn't go to sleep with Bathsheba so that he can cover up that he had slept with his wife and then um, be able to have the baby in Uriah's name instead of his name. And then his whole kingdom will go down. Right. So David realizes Bathsheba and, uh, and Uriah didn't sleep together. So in verse 10, he says, Uriah, um, David was told Uriah didn't go home. And so it says, so, uh, so he asked Uriah, um, so, I mean, you've been out and you, um, you just come from a military campaign. Um, so why didn't you go home? Right. So he's trying to cover up from sin and he's realizing that Uriah is not going to participate because his sin is so in him. He's trying to cover it up and he doesn't know what to do. So verse 11, Uriah says to David and Uriah is so honorable. He says the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God dwells, Israel, Judah are all staying in tents. And my commander, Job, and my and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. 
How do I go to a house, to my house, to eat or to drink and to make love to my wife? As surely as I live, I would never do such a thing. Uriah has more integrity than David in this moment. And so, again, uh, David said, oh, okay, well, you know, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. So now David starts plotting. So David invitation to, um, to Uriah and Uriah, he ate, he drank with him and David made Uriah drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went to sleep on his mat amongst his master's servants and he did not go home. Sin will make the Christian love it. Sin will make the Christian protect it. And it will make you despise holiness. And that's what happens with David. He doesn't, he's not a man after God's own heart right now. No, he's a man after his own sin and his own protection. He's protecting it. And he is not protecting Uriah. And he's despising Uriah's holiness and his unwillingness to forfeit his friendships on the battlefield or the Lord. And so we see this before. This is not new. We see this in the garden, right? When Adam and Eve have sinned, they protect it. They sow these fig leaves. And here in verse six, David has fig leaves. He says, hey, man, how you doing? Uh, have some wine. Have this. Go party. He's covering up all these things with acts and performances. And ladies, I know this. I've been in college ministry myself. Performances oftentimes hide a hard heart. A heart that does not love God, a heart that does not pursue God. But I'm talking to my leaders in here. I'm talking to the girls who can beat a thousand one Bible studies. The girl who knows the text backwards and forwards can teach it way better than me. I'm talking about the girls who are the worship leaders. I'm talking about the ones who've been in church for so long. You don't even know what to say. I'm talking to you. I'm saying that your performances, your hard work, all of those things are just that. They're yours. They're not unto the Lord. If you're struggling with sin, that it's just you're just doing it to cover up the sin that you're struggling with. You're actually caught and so that, 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 um, that Bible study you taught doesn't, as the Bible says, doesn't even go past the roof of the house unto the Lord because it's about you. It's about covering up your foolishness and not unto the Lord. So again, here, I love that God is so gracious to us, though. So even though our sin natures and our performances, God is still so faithful to David. He still keeps David, even in his foolishness. Don't we realize that the breath in our lungs to even curse God comes from him? That's the way God deals with David. He doesn't immediately strike him down. He's patient with David. He moves toward David. And I want to make this to be very clear. I know I'm teaching a hard word. And I know my personality is very intense. I get all that. But I'm telling you, when you're in community and you're talking with somebody through your sin, you need people to be tender to you. You need people to listen to you. You need to be able to confess in spaces that will give you freedom. That is what this is about. I'm hard on something because I know when you don't want to let something go, you got to talk hard. Okay, but also know that this is a place of mercy and justice and goodness from God. And so sin, I'm going to be honest, it has benefits. That's something that they don't talk about. Sin does have benefits and that's why people do it. (laughs) Right. But the point about it is it's short lived and it will never give you the return on your investment that you want ever. And in God's grace, my prayer is that he would expose my sin and your sin so that we may have freedom and never be captured by it, never be plotted with it. So David, again, he protects his sin. He despises Uriah. In the backdrop, if you guys, I was trying to get there. Remember those 30 men when David was in the wilderness who kept him? One of those were Uriah. Talk about disloyalty. You slept with your boy's wife. That's how gone David was in his sin. Sin will have you reasoning stupid. Literally, it will. It will make you get to a spot where the places and the things that you used to do that you don't even do anymore. You do new behavior because sin has a behavior. Sin has a nature. Please do not miss that. 
And so here in the backdrop, what we realize is that David and Uriah are their friends. And, and, and David's not the man right now that's the kingly man. No, Uriah is. Uriah stays loyal to David. He stays loyal to the men. And Uriah, again, in his honorable nature, he's someone to be esteemed. So what I'm saying is, is that sometimes when you're dealing with sin, particularly with others, I had a situation with a friend, unfortunately, and it was her sin, but yet I paid the price. And that's what I'm telling you sometimes, that when you're in Christian community, Sometimes it's the sin of others that you paid a price for and you should not lose your integrity over it. You should not become angry or bitter. No, you say that God will reveal on his last day and in his comings. You trust yourself unto God. Uriah does it to the point of death. God doesn't rarely ask us to do something that severe, right? So there's so many times where David could have stepped out of this. He could have stopped sinning, right? So many times. One of the reasons where he could have stopped sinning was in verse 12, if you're with me, he could have pulled back when he realized Uriah was not willing to participate in his foolishness here. In verse 13, he, he could have pulled back after it went even. He got Uriah's drunk and Uriah still wouldn't go into his house. Verse 14, <laughs> we're not going to go over it because I don't have time to read it with my time. But David, he writes a letter, y'all, to Joab. To get, day, to get uh, Uriah to go to the battlefield and he puts him at the front of the battlefield and he tells the troops to pull back. So Uriah is killed because he keeps trying to get Uriah to sleep with his wife, but he'll never do it. So what David does is put him again on the front line. And then he's like, well, they'll take care of that. So then nobody will know who the baby daddy is. Right. <laughs> but what I'm, I'm saying is a word for you. David wrote out a whole letter. At any point, he could have stopped that letter. Right. At any point, you could stop your sin. Right. When you have a text message that's like a poll page long that is sin, I don't care what it is. When you're in an argument and you're going through with a friend and you got a text message, it's like three, four different pages that is sin. Stop it. All right. And so, thank you. Finally, a laugh. Y'all have been up here like, where y'all at? Okay. Verse 25. Verse 25 again. You would have thought after David completed the task of what he did to kill him, you would have thought, Oh, wow. Like David would have confessed. I, I mean, when I sin, sometimes I'm like, all right, God, I'll never do it again. Right. Somebody can feel me on that. Amen. And but now that ain't what David says in 25. He says to Joab, who's the person who sent um, Uriah to the front lines. He says to him, he says, um, don't let this trouble you that Uriah's died. Joab, my accomplished murder. He says, for the sword devours now one and then another. He's just saying what will happen, what will happen. They ain't on us. That was the battles of the war. He's not owning his sin. And see, God is so gracious to us that he doesn't leave us in our foolishness. I cannot say that enough. Um, before I get to that point, I just want to say this really fast. There's an imagery that's in James 1, and that imagery is an imagery of pregnancy. And so when you notice, it's really interesting that God uses that because in the imagery of pregnancy, right, a person has um, desire and then it has conception and then it births. Similarly, in pregnancy, first trimester, second trimester, third, well, <laughs> the same thing happens with sin, right? And because of this, it, because it's natural in a way, it's unnatural to stop it, right? It's going to be unnatural to come out of the sin that you're in. And what's going to end up happening is you're going to realize it's costly because it goes against your flesh to come out of sin. And so it's going to feel exposing. Again, it's going to require you to confess. It's going to require you to repair relationships that you've broken, to be humbled. These things are all unnatural to our flesh. But the spirit of God, it feeds off of it. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like you're getting stronger, but I tell you, sister, you're getting stronger when God is feeding off of this. And even sometimes, again, you may be judged. But let me tell you again, the mercy of God is great. The mercy of God is good. The mercy of God is splendor. 
I'm going to get to a point in this passage. If you're if you've been uncomfortable with desire and you've been already off me for saying you're going to really hate the deaf part. I'm going to be really honest about that. So what I decided to do in my talk and my prep and prayer was I decided to set up this point, which is point three verses a chapter 11 verses 26 all the way through chapter 12 to verse 23. David's sin produces death. Very simple. But in that, what I want to start with, because you will not understand the consequences of David's sin, right? We will not understand the consequences of why it feels so hard. You feel like God is angry. He's mean. He's mad. No, 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 no. God is holy. And in today's society, there's there's really not a way to be able to express the holiness, the reverence of God that we should have. But when I say he's holy, sis, I mean, he is holy. He is holy, holy, holy. The Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. That is God and his holiness. In verse 27, it says that David had did a thing to displease the Lord. This is chapter 11. And who can stand, who have displeased the Lord? Who can stand in the sight of a holy God if they have displeased him? Right? No man can. This God is so holy that in eternity past, again, in eternity to come, he cannot stand the smallest sense of blemish. He has never let it stood beside him. So can David stand beside him when he's committed adultery and murder? Absolutely not. God is so holy that when I see God in the Bible, he comes down to theophany. This world shudders. I'm talking about trees blow back. I'm talking about mountains tremble. Give me one thing that does that. That is our type of God. He is so good that he brings Israel out of the mighty hand of Pharaoh. There's no man that can stand against our type of God. That's his holiness and his might. You know, there's an imagery that we have of God. And in that imagery that we have of God is one of the most beautiful spaces because there are angels that when we see angels, we think it's God. That's how holy they are. They have no sin. And even though they have no sin, they say that when the angels come before him, what do they do? They cannot stand just outright. They have to cover their hands over their, their wings, I'm sorry, over their, their eyes. They cover their feet because God is so holy and God is holy and he is good. And because he is holy and he is good, he desires for you and for me to be holy. He says, be holy as I am holy. This is the type of God that we have here. And so God in his mercy, because he wants us to be holy, he points out of our sin is never for your condemnation. It's always for your conviction. It's always for your good. I don't care what it is. I don't care if you've committed adultery. I don't care if you've, if you've, you've had one of the most heinous things happen or you've done the most heinous things. It is still God is working and he is doing something even for you, the person who's committed the sin. That's who this message is for. It's not for the one necessarily who's offended. I'm not teaching to the Uriahs right now. I'm teaching to the Davids, right? And God, again, is holy. And so because he's holy and because he good, he's good, he sends Nathan, who's a prophet, And he sends him to David. And when he sends him to David, God uses this parable about this little lamb. And one man had a lamb and this man had like a hundred lambs. And then this one lamb that he had, he took him and he fed um, a dinner feast, like the rich man fed it to these people. So what it happens is, and I can't get into it because of time limit. What ends up happening is God uses just the mundane things of life to be able to convict you. It's not always this big sit down moment is what I'm trying to get at. Sometimes it's just a, a, a TV show that you watch. Sometimes it's you overhearing a conversation. It's at the airport. And I overheard a conversation talking about a girl talking about her mother was passing. And I was immediately convicted about my own mother and my relationship with her. There's not always, again, the big things in the text. It's just sometimes God just showing up to stop you for a moment, to speak to you. And so there's consequences to the sin here for David. And these consequences are two. The first one is that he takes away the wives of David 
and he gives them to another. Found familiar? David took someone's wife and became with someone else. And so God says, I'm going to do the same thing you do, and I'm going to do it in the light because there's no darkness in me. Right. He continues and he says and, and he continues. And the second one is, is that um, that David has a bloodshed based in his family based off of David's sin. God takes the baby away that Bathsheba conceives. He takes the baby away, not because the baby was wrong, but because David was wrong. His sin produces death. That is point blank always going to happen. And here, unfortunately, the innocent, the innocent suffer. And there's a theme line with David that in David's sin, innocents suffer. The innocent continue to suffer. So with Uriah, right, with the baby, even you start to see in his family line, there's a lot of division, a lot of death. There's a lot of things to go through. It's the innocentness. And what I love about teaching this right off the hills of Easter Sunday, I don't even have to give you the whole picture of what happens with Christ. But if you ain't seen yourself in David's story this whole time, I want you to see yourself in the story in this way, that you too, me too, has spilled innocent blood, right? We know that. On Easter Sunday, you talk about how he rose. On, on a Good Friday, you talked about his death. But if you will entertain me for seconds, in Matthew chapter tw um, 27, there's this space where Pilate is going back and forth with the crowd. And who is the crowd? It's the Jews who want to crucify Christ. And in verse 22, they, um, Pilate says, what shall I do then with Jesus, who is the Messiah? And then they answered, crucify him. And then he says, Pilate, why? What crime has he committed? But then they loud, even more louder, said, crucify him. And in verse 24, it's interesting here that Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere. He saw the crowd was starting to, to get really rowdy. So what he does is he says he took water. He washed his hands in front of the crowd. He says, I am innocent of this man's blood. And he said, it is your responsibility. Now, you would have thought that moment again, the crowd would have been convicted. Nope. 25. They answer. They say his blood is on us and our children. Now, my point here. It's just just like that crowd who has self-interest, who take the blood of Christ in order for they may have benefit and gain, whether it be political gain at the time, whether it be just they have this guy named Jesus out of their hair. They take that innocent blood and very similarly, their sins put him on the cross. Our sins put Jesus on the cross in the innocent shedding of Jesus blood. We are no dis we are no different than the crowd. Right. We're no different than the Peter who denies him several and several more times. It is the innocence of Christ's blood that is on the cross that is shed. Very similarly, we too can say that we are like David. We have shed innocent blood. In Acts chapter 2, though, I told you I did not come to preach a message of condemnation, but I came to preach a message of freedom and restoration. And in Acts chapter 2, something beautiful happens. Y'all, it's beautiful, it's beautiful, it's beautiful. And in Acts chapter 2, there's a conversation with Peter, who, again, has denied Jesus three times. So he's culpable of Jesus's death as the crowd who crucified him. And listen to this interchange. Of, and this is after Jesus has rose at the grave. It's after Jesus has went and ascended to the right plan of the father. And Jesus is now alive. And so we have access. You have the Pentecost. The spirits upon them. And so things are moving in the church and there's all these great things happening. And they're like, oh, my gosh, crap, that was Christ. What shall I do? And so in Acts chapter two, verse thirty seven. Peter says this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. Hmm. Again, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, but Lord, both Lord and Messiah. Verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to their hearts and they said to Peter and the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, 
repent. Repent, sis. Like you repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And in verse 39, it is so sweet. I'm sorry, right before 39, it's 30, 38. He says, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's a promise to you. You, I'm telling you, if you are in Christ and you've sinned, it's not that the Holy Spirit has ever left you. He still dwells in you. If you, for the first day, are receiving Christ in this season of your life and you're starting to understand about Christ, and he says that once you confess your sins for the first time, he says that you receive a good gift, which is him through the holy power of the Holy Spirit. And so he ends here, and there's the biggest promise. Remember what I just read back in Matthew, right? In Matthew, what did they say? Let it be on us and our children. And what does Peter give back to them? He says, the promise is for you and your children. Oh, the exact same thing you give up in your darkness, I don't care what it is, God restores tenfold. Because it's never about you. Because his glory is too much. Because he's redeemed you. He calls you. You're his royal priesthood. So he will always redeem you back to himself, sis. And he not only gives you what you forsake, but he gives you tenfold more. And I know this because right here at the end of this verse, it says, for all who are far off. So not only does he redeem the Jews who crucified, but he redeems us, the Gentiles. God, that's a good word. This is the type of God that we serve. He is powerful to restore us, to redeem us, to keep us, no matter what you have done. And so when I'm talking to the sister who's had the abortion, I am talking to you. I'm talking to the sister who feels like the things and the things of my tongue and my issues, the things I've done to my parents, the things I've done against my children, Whatever it is, God is still gracious to you to redeem you and to keep you. He will never leave nor forsake you. No, no, no. Again, mostly important because it's about him. And I love that. There's a passage in 2 Timothy that talks about God is so good to keep us. Not because we, when we are faithless, he is faithful. So in your faithlessness, God is always going to be faithful to you. And it's sweet and it's just and it's right and it's good. And the reason why, again, that's 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. The reason why this is important is because it would be weird for God to leave David. And he does not. He actually keeps David. So while he keeps us with the cross, he also keeps David back with, um, with the situation with Bathsheba. And chapter 12, it says that God will not leave you. He will not condemn you. That's what Nathan tells him. You're going to have consequences to your sin. That is real. I cannot ignore that enough, especially if you're a new believer. Please believe that there are going to be things that you've done when you were in the world and there are going to be consequences. There were consequences to my sin that I had to deal with when I was in the world. That is just real. And so when I came to Christ, it's not that those things went away. I still had to have, again, repentance. I still had to have different things go on between me and the Lord. And there were things that God had to get out of me. If you've been sitting in sin for 20 years, how you think the next day that you're not going to have to form new habits and godliness, right? So don't be discouraged when you realize, oh man, I got this new life in Christ, but I'm still doing X, Y, and Z. Give your time self and grace to grow into the things of godliness. But again, again, I can't, I'm stressing this and I'm ending here that God is faithful to David. He's faithful to David because he made a promise to David. And his promise is going to come in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's one of these key verses that if you go to seminary, you go to your pastors, there's one of the key verses. They say you explain the rest of the Bible through this one uh, chapter here. And in 2 Samuel chapter, um, 2 Samuel chapter 7, he gives him a promise. He says, your house, your kingdom will endure forever before me. Raise up an offspring and establish your kingdom. Again, he's going to give David a kingdom, but he says it's going to live forever before me. How is that going to happen? Who is he talking about? 
here. Way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he's not talking about the next one that will come, which is Solomon. He can't be talking about the baby that he took away. Here he's talking again about Christ. He's saying through the lineage of David, Christ will come. So David is kept, I would say, because God loves him, because also God has made him a promise and God would not forfeit on his promise. And so when Christ comes back, it's a revelation. And the beautiful thing about revelation is we know everything will be made right. There will be no more sin. There will be no more anxiety. There will be no more falter. There will be no more shame. You know, the only way that we will see any remnants of sin in heaven, you know what it is? It's Christ's hands. It says it's still pierced with whole scars. That's how much he reminds you of your redemption that you had in, in the earth and the redemption that he's bled for that you would have now in heaven. But when Christ comes back, it's in the end and it closes out in Revelation. It's the last chapter, one of the last couple of verses. Christ could identify himself and close this book of the, uh, of, of the Bible with anything he wanted to. He could identify himself as prophet, as priest, as king, anything. But you know how he identifies himself, the king of the universe? He identifies himself back to the promise of 2 Samuel chapter 7. And he says this, I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. That's God. That's our Christ. He always reaches back. He never forsakes what he has said that will happen in your life, regardless of what the sins that you struggle with. Again, God not only forgives your sin, but he also restores us back from our sin. Ladies, I am so thankful for your patience with me. I'm so thankful for your time here. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to let us go. God, I thank you so much for the women in this room. I thank you so much for your kindness, for your generosity to us, that, God, we would be able to even meet. God, to be able to sit in your word. I thank you so much for the heads that were bowed during this time, that they were just taking notes. God, I know your spirit has moved in this moment. I know you have not forsaken, God, your own word. I know it has done something, has accomplished something. We ask, God, that Christ would reign in this room and reign in our hearts. And God, I know there are things that have nothing to do with what I've said, but God, it have been, the women in this room have been reminded of the things that you want to bring to bear. And God, you do it never for conviction. You've said that time and time again, but God, you only do it for their glory. You only do it so that they may have intimacy back with you. So God, I ask that the women in this room where this may be a heavy message, a message that feels somewhat like they got a whooping, Father, I ask that they would feel the healing balm of your spirit, that your spirit would come in and would minister to these women, that God, this would spur women on to do in you what they could never do in themselves in their own flesh. Again, God, you are good for the women listening online. We pray a special blessing that they would tune into this talk, Father. Even though they are far off, God, they are brought near in this moment, just as they've said in the word too. So God, we love you. We thank you. We praise you in your son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast. Check out more gospel-centered resources at thegospelcoalition.org.